Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Award-winning author Dean Slider has taught meditation since 1970, from maximum security prisons to the Guatemalan rainforest. A grateful student of Eastern and Western sages in several traditions, he's completed numerous pilgrimages and retreats in India, Tibet, Nepal, and the West. His latest book, The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, Finding Nirvana in the Classics, reflects his lifelong exploration of the awakening process, as well as his years as a prep school English teacher. Slider's other books include Fear Less, Natural Meditation, The Zen Commandments, and Cinema Nirvana. Well, hey, Dean, it's great to welcome you back to the Story Talks Back. Thank you so much, David. It's, It's so good to be back here again. It's great to have you as my first returning guest. Right, right. How, how long has the podcast been going now? Approaching two years. Oh, that's great. Crazy, right? Time, time flies when you're having quarantine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and some fun. Yeah. Um, so we did talk last time about stories and storytellers in your past. Um, mm-hmm. Remember you talked about Winnie the Pooh. And uh, is there any other... Have you had any other thoughts about stories and storytellers in your in your history since the last couple of years? Well, um, I have to stipulate two things. One is I, I don't remember anything about what we talked about last time. No worries. <laughs> it's, it's not personal. There's a whole lot of things I don't remember. Um, uh, and the other thing is, uh, uh, since we spoke last, I, I wrote and published a new book called the Dharma bums guide to Western literature, which is about books, stories. Uh, so I've been, you know, very much, um, saturated with, uh, with the works that I wrote about in that book, uh, the subtitle finding Nirvana in the classics. And, you know, that's my, my passion is finding Nirvana wherever possible. <laughs> Turns out right. everywhere is possible if you, if you look deep enough. So, so those are the stories that are on my mind right now. Right. There is one, one formative story that you include in the book, which is, uh, you know, it's fairly brief, but you talk about uh, Alfred E. Newman and, uh, and yeah. his famous saying, which was uh, sort of like the three words that launched you in a way. Yes, that's actually the very beginning of the book. The you know when I when I sit down to write a book, um, I, I you know there's a lot of churning and false starts and all that. For me, anyway, the key moment is when I get the first sentence. For instance, when I wrote Cinema Nirvana: Enlightenment Lessons from the Movies, when I got the first sentence, that was Tibetan temples smell like popcorn, <laughs> right? 
which is true. And it, and I go on to explain it's because of the butter lamps that have been burning there on the altars for, for centuries. And you, when you walk through the temples, the, the, the floors, the stone floors are sticky under your feet, like in a messy movie theater. Um, so with this one, um, I got the, when I got the first sentence, which was, I, I found my first guru on the cover of Mad Magazine. <laughs> I, I knew I was okay. So the story is, and, and here's the book, by the way, and the, the story is that, um, true story, in 1961, I was 11 or 12 years old, and um, my mom sent me out to the garage to clean out the back seat of our Nash Rambler station wagon because we were going to be going to a drive-in movie that night. So I had to clear out all the toys and the comic books that my two brothers and I had left there. And my mind in those days already at the ripe young age of 11 or 12 had a habit of just churning all the time, just, just buck, 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 all this kind of um, anxiety-laden inner conversation going on that I think a lot of people are familiar with. But at that point, I was already so habituated to it that I, I, I didn't realize I was caught up in that because I was caught up in that, you know? Sure. Um, so I'm out there in the garage by myself, picking up these comic books. And the next one that I pick up is a mad magazine. And on the cover is actually, I, I got the put the picture in the book here um, on the cover as usual, is Mad's grinning idiot mascot, Alfred E. Newman. And as usual, there's his slogan, what me worry? And suddenly my mind stopped. It just went completely deliciously silent. And what happened was I realized that that anxious churning that was going on habitually in my mind is, a, is suddenly I realized that that was in fact a thing that was going on, that it was called worry, and that I was doing it. That the, the reason that that engine, so to speak, was revving all the time was that my foot was on the gas. It wasn't happening to me, I was doing it. And having suddenly seen that clearly, really just like a lightning bolt of clarity, uh, having seen that, I knew, oh, I can take my foot off the gas pedal. And my mind went silent. And really, at that moment, it was as if the top of my head opened up and merged with the sky. And really, I went into what, you know, some not too long later, about five, six years later, when I started reading books of Eastern wisdom, I went, oh, this is called Samadhi or Satori, or over on the other side of the ocean, it's called Grace. And it's not just some weird freak thing. It's, it's what it's all about. It's the fundamental beingness of life. It's been known by sages for centuries. And you don't have to wait for it to happen to you accidentally like that. You can cultivate it systematically through meditative practices. So you, you learned the Four Noble Truths from Alfred E. Newman in, a, in an instant. Yeah, well, I, I learned... Not, not the whole four noble truths. I got, I got the, the, the truth about samadhi, uh -huh. right? Um, 
but but as far as the fact that oh yeah right no i got the first, i got three now that you mentioned that okay i got oh this churning going on this anxiety is suffering that's the first noble truth right and oh guess what i've been the suffering doesn't come from outside it comes from inside second noble truth and because it i'm the one that's doing it that's the best of all possible news that means i can stop doing it so yeah you're, you're i got three out of four noble truths and then the fourth which took a few years to pick up was oh and then you practice the fourth noble truth the truth of the path is you keep practicing to cultivate that to integrate it more permanently into your life right i mean i think you know to me there's a connection between i mean there's a connections all over the book but you mm -hmm. know there's a connection for me between the cat in the hat and alfred e newman in the yeah. sense that they're both tricksters you know yes. they're both you know kind of anarchists um mm -hmm. and they also they're they speak or they're associated with very simple statements, you know, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. like, you know, um, the cat in the hat is it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how, you know, right. or, uh, you know, how that bump made us jump, you know, mm -hmm. those, those statements are so simple and yet they're so powerful. I wonder if you feel uh, in terms of looking at stories from a Dharma perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, is simplicity a benefit? Yeah, simplicity. You know, I, I was, this came out of me the other day in a um, meditation session I, I was conducting. Um, oh, this was one in New Jersey. You were there <laughs> last, <laughs> on, last Sunday. I was going to say, was I there? <laughs> That's right. You were. You were. And, uh, and what I heard myself saying was, anytime you find yourself puzzling over which way to go in a meditation, you know, any kind of spiritual practice, is it this way or this way? Ask yourself, which way is simpler? Which way is simpler? And, and usually that's a, that's a pretty good guide. Because the ultimate truth, that sounds like a pompous phrase, but, you know, what, what all the sages, all the traditions, and increasingly our own experience through our own practice tells us all the, 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 the ultimate truth, beingness, is, the, is, is infinitely simple. It just is. It has no features. It's not hot or cold, big or small, male or female, new or old. It's just, we have to say a word so we, say, we can say, it just is. And even that's too much because it's not is as opposed to not is. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's my, my, my sometimes favorite word for it. So what we're trying to do all the time in, you know, if you're teaching Dharma, if you're trying to convey it through and guiding people in meditation. And I think that, that this, you know, great literature in its, you know, in its highest moments, you know, it, it, there may be a whole very complex web of character and story and all that, but it's everyone in the stories is searching for something simple. They're, they usually miss it because it's so mm. simple. There's a thing they say, um, actually, in 12-step programs, you know, it's a, it's a simple 
program for complicated people. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's kind of like that. So yeah, I had you know most most of 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 what I have in this book is what we usually would think of as classic literature in the English language. So I have Macbeth and Moby Dick, Huckleberry Finn, The Great Gatsby, um, um, uh, uh, To the Lighthouse, Virginia Woolf. The, I've got the po the slave narrative of Frederick Douglass. So for some pretty serious stuff, but I also have The Cat in the Hat. Uh, that was fun. I also have uh, Oklahoma, Rogers and Hammerstein, Oklahoma. That ends up the, the the high point of that is the most simple statement of what's what, which is okay, Oklahoma, okay. Right. And, and I take a page or two, of course, I get something simple and I have to complicate it <laughs> with, with a lot of unpacking um, <laughs> to show how much is contained in that simple thing. And I have a whole lot of fun uh, with the history of that expression, okay. Oh, you know, my favorite description of of samadhi satori nirvana the indescribable my my best stab at describing the indescribable is because partly to pull the rug out from under all these notions that people have oh it's like having a 24 7 you know orgasm and fireworks shooting out of your ears and all that is what i say is infinite okayness mm -hmm. so I had a great time realizing, oh, yeah, okay, okay. what is okay, oh, as in om, is beingness, right. weightless, textureless, colorless, infinite beingness, and then K is the k, the hard stuff, even the, the forms of the letters, O is like, you know, the just infinite, boundless, 360 degree, and then the K is like the arrowhead hitting the wall. Then, then we hit the, the wall of material life uh, where we have to take action. And, uh, okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I think one thing that does strike me is that in some of the books, you know, the, the main character or someone in the book has it figured out, like the cat in the hat again. You know, mm -hmm. you have a sense that he's mm. got all of this under control and everybody mm. else is kind of mm -hmm. so confused by him, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas in other, in other books, the central characters really are caught up, you know, and still very confused. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense about whether that's more relatable or how, how do those two sort of structures work in terms of storytelling and, and dharma? Well, I'm trying to think uh, who else has it figured. The cat, I would not say the cat has it under control. The cat is a, <laughs> you know, he's the spirit of, of, of anarchy. Uh, and which, which, you know, he's, he's, um, um, uh, you know, he's moksha, he's liberation. He's, or as, as kids all over the world call it, we, <laughs> and um he, uh, but yeah, ultimately he's he he's the teacher. He he's the Buddha there. Uh, I have a lot of fun with the the picture. Um, the, uh, I like to play with iconography. You know, I spent some time in Tibet with a wonderful Buddhist teacher that you know, Charles Janu, um, 
taking us through temple after temple, seeing one uh, Tonka and, and Rupa after another, all these figures of the of various Buddhas, and him explaining how, well, this one's holding this many fingers up, and this one's hands in this position, and how it all reflects different aspects of the unfolding of, of our inherent enlightenment. So I do the same thing with the the picture of the cat in the hat striding through the door. He's over, as you're looking at the double page spread, he's over on the right and he's, and over on the left are the two kids who, you know, the presenting problem in the cat in the hat is it's raining outside. They can't go out and play. So we, they had to sit, 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 sit. And we did not like it. Not one little bit. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's what you do on, on meditation retreat. You sit, 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 and a whole right. lot of the time you don't like it, not one little bit. Uh, and meditate, and as I explained, the history meditation retreats originated when the Buddha was leading his hundreds of followers in their homeless wanderings around northern India. But you couldn't do that during the monsoon season, so they would find some abandoned building or cave and sit, and that's when they would would retreat. So. The cat comes comes in and crossing from the the viewer's right to the left, you know, in theater, that's a that's an uphill cross. It, it goes counter to the direction that we read in. So when someone crosses from the audience's left to their right, that's like an easy cross. When when they're going from the right to the left, that's uphill. They're going to going to dis, disrupt the established order. And that's what the cat is doing as he strides through the door. And then I have a lot of fun um, showing the parallel between that and the iconography of um, the the calling of St. Matthew by Caravaggio, which when I was in Rome once some years ago, this this was in this, this little French cathedral near our hotel. And I kept having to go back and go back and look at this painting. It just, it was so powerful. And here's Jesus with um, St. Peter tagging along with him, crossing from the right, just like the cat in the hat, to disrupt things here. Over here on the left is the about-to-become St. Matthew with his fellow tax collectors taxing, uh, counting their ill-gotten gains, because tax collectors in those days were basically like, you know, mafia collectors, <laughs> right? You know, right. Uh, uh, prote- there's a protection racket, basically. And and here's the f- the about to become St. Matthew looking up in this startled way, like a deer in the, a deer in the heaven light. <laughs> Jesus is coming through the door on this big tractor of divine light. Um, and I went, whoa, it's the cat in the hat. <laughs> about to show, about to show Matthew that it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. <laughs> but this whole thing of the trickster, like Huck Finn, you know, these yeah. people who are so disruptive. And that really is what, you know, the Dharma and the teachings are, you know, they're so simple and yet they're so threatening to the traditional order, right? So they're kind of a stand in, in a way for that sense of being threatened by something different. Well, they're the. The Dharma is threatening to something even more basic than the social order. They're they're uh, they they're threat. They're more deeply subversive than that because what they subvert is our very idea of who or what we think we are. Mm-hmm. We think we're a a person, 
Mm-hmm. Right? We think we're a we think we're a person. We think that we're this thing, this personality that you know that dwells in a bag of skin. It's been tagged with a name, right? We've been bagged and tagged. We know <laughs> who we are, um, and then along comes Dharma and says that's not what you are. Now that freaks people out when to be told you're not a person at all. I I I. I explore that pretty deeply in my chapter on Frederick Douglass because he explains how for him to become liberated from slavery he the key for him was was literacy he had to learn to read and find out that there was a wide world outside of his plantation life where he was told he was an object he was a, a you know a farming implement he was a beast of burden uh, a big fact in his life was that like the other slaves of the time he had no idea what his birthday was and that was deliberate because to to give a person for if if you have a birthday it means you're a person right right? right. and in fact even years after he was liberated from slavery and he became this you know very prominent citizen after the war he 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 quested for the rest of his life to find out his birthday and never found out Mm-hmm. Um, so his whole thing was to find out I am a person and that made it possible for, that gave him the confidence and the drive to m- escape from slavery to to escape from his physical bondage but then it turns out that the deeper liberation the liberation from the most from the more fundamental bondage is to find it to, to once you've gone from oh I'm an object to I'm a person to go from I'm a person to I'm boundless beingness right. i'm boundless awareness i'm i'm that which i experienced you know in the garage that <laughs> afternoon when i was 12 years old i'm not anything in here i'm right out there which turns out to be really good news because this thing has to you know get sick and die right so 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 you know most people as you say they they don't want the established order the 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 established idea of their personhood threatened well as long as everything's going pretty good right <laughs> right but when the thing's breaking down you go wait, wait tell me about that non-personhood thing again <laughs> but it's it's interesting to think about you know frederick Douglass just wanting to understand his own birthday yeah and now we have like Ancestry.com to figure yes. out, you know, who was our umpteenth relative on the 32nd, you know, side in the 1600s. So we're never stopped questing, you know, we're never sort of right. rested in everything that we know about ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, f- researching your genealogy can be fascinating and can be fun um, and I think is harmless as long as you have some sense of that of of what you're not that you're not a person otherwise it can become even a more a way to get more deeply entrenched in an idea of oh I'm this person that is descended from this person this person this person this person yeah. and you're spending present moments focused completely on the past you know that too that too I mean, I, I think it's interesting, but yeah, I, I thought it was interesting too that you said uh, near the beginning that you know you were taking parallel between Captain Ahab and Gatsby and waiting for Godot. 
Mm-hmm. All of those characters are pining for the light. Yes. You use that expression. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like every character or every central character in a book is pining for something, right? There has to be something missing to have a plot, right? <laughs> right, right, right. No one ever wrote, you know, a, 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 a great novel or a best-selling novel <laughs> or a novel. Once upon a time, a guy was, you know, was was flopped out on his hammock. It was a right. beautiful afternoon. He was enjoying a tall, cool drink and everything was fine. The end. <laughs> you know, drama, drama is conflict. There has to be something uh, that you think you have to get. And I think that the books that become classics you know whether it's the odyssey home uh, um uh you know odysseus yearning to go home or any you know that it's it's us we're all yearning to go home i mean the the punchline turns out to be that home is home is where the heart is uh, and, and not just heart in terms of affection but the heart of our being it turns out that you know jesus wasn't just fooling around when he said the kingdom of heaven is within you it's it's your own ultimate beingness mm-hmm. so yeah all the all the re, the great literature is going to somehow show someone pining for something yearning for something um pursuing something and if we unpack it you know the deeper we look into it the more we see oh the, what gatsby thinks he wants is daisy Mm-hmm. Right. The first time we see Gatsby, uh, it's at night. He's standing under the stars. He's in the yard of his of his uh, home and the the gold, the North Shore, the Gold Shore of Long Island, with his arms out in this very this iconic gesture. His arms outstretched, um, yearning toward the green light across the water, which is at we find out later at the end of daisy's doc daisy is the woman that he's he's convinced oh if just i can have daisy that'll be it she's my missing piece that'll be the solution of my life everything will then be fine right (laughs) and of course if you've been around life long enough you know that anytime you formulate as long once i get x everything will be fine that'll be the solution of my life i'll be fulfilled you know that that's a, a, a formula for disaster. Right. Um, one thing that's interesting about this book, and it's similar to Cinema Nirvana, your book, Looking for Enlightenment Lessons in, in Movies, mm-hmm. um, is that you didn't go to the books or the movies that are sort of obviously about spirituality. You know, so right. it's, it's, you're going to books where people wouldn't necessarily think there's a Dharma lesson. Uh, right. right. What is the particular satisfaction or the power of finding a Dharma lesson in a book that was written by somebody who may not have even known about the Dharma? Yeah, in, in a way, it's much more fun to go for the, the high-hanging fruit, <laughs> right. you know, uh, because if, if you can show that the infinite, that nir- that the quest for nirvana uh, is in the places where we would least suspect it then we know it's everywhere mm-hmm. you know i love the 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 mondo the zen story about the monk 
who asks his Roshi, his, his master, uh, what is the Buddha? Right? Not who is the Buddha, but what is the Buddha? Meaning really, what is awakening? What is the infinite? What is, what is nirvana? And the, the master replies not, oh, the, the Buddha is the beautiful golden temple or the Buddha is the beautiful sunset or the Buddha is your baby's smile, all of which would also be valid answers, but not very useful. So instead he says, the Buddha is a pile of cow shit in the middle of the road, right? Because if you can see it there, then you see it everywhere. That's significant. So that's why I love finding Nirvana in Moby Dick, uh, in Waiting for Godot. Um, but also, I must say, in this book, there, there were some writers who were explicitly and very consciously and deliberately pursuing the spirit and their literature uh, um, very overtly reflects that. I mean, William Blake, you can't not write about Blake, right? You know, if you're going to talk about that universal yearning, you have to have Blake's, ah, sunflower, right? The image here is that the sunflower is, a, is heliotropic. As the sun travels across the sky, the, the sunflower turns its head always toward the sun. Ah, sunflower, weary of time who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done, where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. I mean, <laughs> come on, come on, you, you can't not. Okay, we have to end the interview now. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm sure you thought about, as you were writing this book, you know, the danger of imposing uh, a structure or an idea or a theme onto something. How, how much did you think about, am I really seeing this here or am I placing it here? Uh, no, I don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, okay. I'm seeing, you know, there, there's, there's some, um, I, I did occasionally have moments of, of wondering, well, here, here's, the, here's the way that I, that I work here, here's my work, you know, first of all, I, I don't write unless I've got a contract and a deadline. I mean, I'm always, my mind is always, I'm always jotting down little epiphanies and wondering, okay, that, that should go in some book or some essay or some paragraph somewhere. Uh, but I don't really work in a systematic way till I've got a, a deadline. I'm, I'm too lazy uh, for that. It's much too easy to just sit and play my ukulele and, you know, <laughs> hang out. Um, so, um, what I would do is uh, get up in the morning and start writing, and um, and every day I would tell myself, okay, I'm going to pick up from where I left off writing this chapter. I'm not going to go back and reread it. And I always would wind up going back and rereading it from the start. 
and 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 rewriting what I had done. So every day, practically, that whatever I'd done so far in the chapter would get rewritten once again. So this stuff is reread for a couple of weeks. Maybe this book took me an average of about two three weeks to to get a chapter done. Mm-hmm. So so what is that? You know, three twenty uh, fourteen to twenty one rewrites. Of 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 everything in the chapter, just refining the language, refining the language. One of the main things I found out about writing, and it's taken me a long time to get this, is that whenever I start writing, I think, "Oh man, this sucks." You know, this just this this is I I may as well stop and give. I can't do this, uh, and th- and that's one of the reasons I need a contract because now I'm you know I'm I, I'm obligated. I've got to I've got to deliver the thing. <laughs> And, and what I keep finding out again and again is, oh yeah, if you keep writing through the and rewriting through the the stuff that sucks, it starts to suck less and suck less. And after a while, hey, it's pretty good. Um, so I would do that for you know a couple, two, three weeks, and then have the chapter as finished as I could do it on my own. And then I would sit down with with Yafa, my wife, who, as you know, she's a, a you know a, a just a superb editor of documentary film so she's got this great editor's ear and and so she would be my first reality check you know does this is this stuff going to make sense to another human being and you know she likes me she's prejudiced she likes me a lot that's why she (laughs) married me but she's still you know um got a good critical ear and if it would work for her okay i would leave it and she'd always had give me some notes, and then I rewrite, and eventually it all went off to my editor, and and okay, it was working for him, and now it's been out for a little more than a month, and I find oh okay, it seems to be working for some other people. So you feel like that whole process has refined any any potential for for seeing things that aren't there. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, some some stuff is always going to be more of a reach than others. Mm. Uh, um, I, I, and I can there's certain places where I know, okay, this is yeah, this is you know, th- this is this is hard to argue with. This is why I'm I'm pushing it a little bit more, but but I don't care. You know, I'm I have it's if I can have enough fun with it, and if I can get the reader to have fun along with me, and if I don't take it seriously and i and i and i make it i hope i make it clear i'm not saying any of this stuff is definitive i'm not saying first of all you know we've already made this clear i'm not saying that this is what the author had in mind um and then in that case okay what does it mean for something to be there or not be there you know i think it's it's like it's like looking at a diamond you you it's got all these facets Right, you look at it this way. Okay, the light bounces through it this way. You turn it this way. Now the light bounces through it a completely different way. Another another thing that I this book made me think about. I thought about a lot before is is the author's story and how that can affect how you yeah. read the book. You know, and so yeah. you do get into the author's stories a lot in your book as you're sort of you sort of switch back and forth sometimes between the book and the author. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the author is yet another story, you know, with another drama. Um, right. Is right. It, what is the potential of that to sort of cloud what's really, really beautiful and and clear there? To to cloud yeah. what's beautiful and clear. Um, 
or to illuminate. Yeah. Well, well, I'd say there's two there's two extremes that don't work in in this particular regard. Um, one is what do they call it the uh, you know the biographical fallacy, uh, where you say oh okay this this thing in Gatsby this is about Fitzgerald's unrequited yearning for this such and such woman I forget her name before he married Zelda, right? That's what it's about. And then if we can we can read this and we go aha now we're onto Fitzgerald we now we know what the book that book is really about we we've got it pegged we've got it reduced to something we can wrap our little mind around in this case a little piece of gossip <laughs> right? right um you know there, there's so much written about oh is hamlet about shakespeare's feelings about his young son whose name was hamnet uh, mm -hmm. you know, a, a variant of, of Hamlet and how much of this is about his resentment of his wife Anne Hathaway and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, now we know what it's about. Boom. We close it. We close the book. We close our mind. So that's one extreme that's just, I think it's just not, it's not conducive to joyously relishing literature. Right. Okay. Now, the other far extreme is... Um, what was it called? This was a big um, trend in in the academia in I think the fifties, the sixties. I think it was form, form criticism or formal whatever it was. It was the one where he said you can't look at all at the author and the author's work. It's, it has to be just the 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 thing, the object completely out, taken out of that context, right. speaking for itself. Um, but, you know, um, uh, to, to try to read Huckleberry Finn completely divorced from the fact that Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens did in fact grow up in a, a Mississippi River town in uh, uh, um, um, in, in in Missouri in the 1830s, like Huck Finn, that he uh, you know saw slavery firsthand, that he had these ambivalent feelings about it, and so forth, um, is I, I mean to me it 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 reduces my enjoyment. Mm -hmm. It's all about enjoyment. It's a, it's you know I say this in the introduction of the book. If 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 it's not fun, what's the point? Mm -hmm. So I. You know, to, to me, it's finding somewhere the, the golden middle path between those two extremes. And, and you know, in some chapters of the book, I talk more about the, the author's life than in others. I, you know, I say very little about Rogers and Hammerstein, um, just because in some cases the author is, a, is much more interesting. Now, this book was really shaped by you teaching. Yes. Richard. And, and a lot of these books to mm -hmm. high school students. Yep. Um, most of whom were probably not into the Dharma. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you think that shaped your view of, you know, the significance of these books and, and you know, the, the, the themes in them? 
I was so fortunate, you know, to have the opportunity to come back for 33 years and, okay, teach Huck Finn yet again, teach <laughs> Gatsby yet again, teach the poetry of Emily Dickinson yet again. And, you know, unless you're completely phoning it in, you, you're, you're seeing deeper and deeper into these works. And then meanwhile, I'm doing my own meditation. I'm teaching meditation. I'm going off on, on retreats with these wonderful lamas and, and, and rishis during the summer break and the Christmas break. So, you know, naturally, uh, these dots started to get connected. But also, the I think teaching high school was very valuable for my to my ability to convey this stuff in a in a lively way you know to keep hormone crazed 15 year olds <laughs> right. right engaged with chaucer <laughs> you you, you got to do some pretty slick tap dancing uh <laughs> And, and, and I mean, that's the thing that I've been very pleased to hear from people uh, reading the book is saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's lively, it's fun. It's not like dusty academia. Uh, you know, in, in a way, you know, there was a brief moment of my, I was just remembering this the other night that, oh yeah, there was this moment in my life when I was filling out applications to go to graduate school in, in literature uh, and yeah, I think I applied to Berkeley. Was there somewhere else? And what happened to those applications? I don't even remember. I don't remember if I sent them in or if I got rejected or changed my mind or what. I think probably got rejected. Uh, and I think at least, and I know for some people that's a great thing, uh, but for me it was a blessing because I'm not burdened with that, with, you know, the PhDs, um, usually, you know, the cliche about graduate school is that, you know, you write your dissertation and you basically you, you get to know more and more about less and less. Uh, and because I've just remained kind of a, you know, happy-go-lucky generalist, just making the stuff work for high schoolers, right. uh, that I, I think that's worked, worked for, for this book. And it's, this is your thesis. <laughs> that's my thesis. That's there's my thesis. Re really, this thing was gestating for over forty-five years. I I knew for that long I was one day going to have to write a book like this, um, and just you know it kept not being the right time, and and finally I was with the right publisher, New World Library. This is my first book with them. Um, a wonderful editor, Jason Gardner, who was just so deft at. Uh, encouraging my best ideas and and gently talking me down from my my really bad ideas of which I had several so um, yeah it just kind of came together well the book is great Dean I really really loved it and I think it's it's a great mixture of your your Dharma teachings and this these wonderful books that you really help us understand better so oh, thank you you know it in a way it was like I realized someone had to write a book like this. Something that happens, I mean, you know this in the publishing industry when you're, you're pitching a, a nonfiction book um, uh, to various potential publishers, uh, you write a proposal. And one of the things you have to do is like, a, okay, what else is out there in the market that is at all similar to this? Uh -huh. and, and, and how is yours different? And there wasn't anything like this. 
the the closest thing to this was a book written got in the 40s or 50s by the name escapes me now he was a brit and it was uh, zen zen in english literature hmm. and and it was written at a level of you know, it was kind of so deep into the zen sensibility and 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 the kind of a graduate school sensibility the literature that it was just nothing like what i was doing here well that's because you're unique i'm unique just like everyone else <laughs> well thanks so much for your time dean really great to talk to you and uh best of luck with the book and everything else thank you dave okay talk to you soon Bye. <laughs>